right. Good morning. Good evening. Good night. Welcome into the Nifty Q Show. I'm interviewing founders, leaders, and builders in the non-fungible token industry as well as Web3. Today, I'm sitting with my good friend, Mike Finch from Parada Capital. We'll be discussing how Fed rates, stock prices, and other macro market conditions affect NFTs and Web3, where he's spending his time and money in the current environment, and why the Pirates will never win a World Series. Uh, so I don't know where you want to start with that one, Mike. You want to start with the Pirates? How are you doing today? Oh, doing good, man. I, uh, I'm actually hitting a uh, Cubs game at Wrigley next weekend, and uh, they seem to be in the battle for worst in the in the conference or whatnot, division, whatever it is in baseball. So uh, we'll see. They lose. Pirates might be, for once, not the worst in, uh, in, in their little conference there. So, But, you know, Pirates are going to Pirates, just like, just like the Fed's going to Fed, and Bitcoin's going to Bitcoin. So we're going to get to all that. Well, hopefully we can catch a game together uh, here. Maybe the the Red Sox, like you said, were in town in August, so maybe we can catch a game. But uh, we have bigger things to talk about than the Pirates World Series aspirations, uh, which are essentially zero. I definitely want to have this conversation about how TradeFi and how all of these other factors that typically on a day-to-day basis we DGENs don't really kind of run into. Uh, but I want to talk about how all of those factors influence our industry too, man. But uh, we'll get into that. I want to give a quick shout out to the chat. We've been having massive, massive problems with the computer, with the just internet, just anything that can go wrong and will go wrong happened in the past 48 hours. So I'm sorry for not getting content out to you guys this week. I know it's it's the first time we're putting out content. It's Thursday, but you know sometimes it happens. So we, we got a little rugged, but I'm excited to be sitting down with Mike here, man. How are you doing just in general, man? I know you said you, you're headed to a, a Wrigley Field game, but in general, like NFTs, crypto stuff, how, how are you hanging in this bear market? Yeah. Yeah, man, it's been good. I mean, um, you know, there's kind of a lot of talk on, on other podcasts around uh, what you would call survivorship bias or, or survivor bias, right? Which I think is what um is going on a little bit with folks who maybe are doing better this time around this bear market versus the one in uh 2018 2019 or even the the crazy crash we saw in march 2020 so you know we 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 lived through the last bear we lived through march 2020 and um you know while this one was significant uh it's been a little bit easier so uh, myself and and a handful of other people are kind of like well you know a little i'm a little hesitant to say like you know, we're going back to 30 or 40 or 50 K right away. Uh, just because generally they, uh, the, the stigma is that when you start to feel that way is kind of where the, where the local top sits. But, um, you know, like I said, I've, I've basically been able to kind of survive the, the chaos. that was June. We talked about that a little bit on the last, uh, episode we did together and certainly other details have come out that I'm sure everybody's heard about with, uh, three hours capital and now Celsius fully going through bankruptcy and, all this kind of contagion talk. Um, but, you know, it seems like sentiment in the space, my, you know, my sentiment included has, has really kind of shifted or at least leveled out, you know, no, nobody's screaming for 10 or 12 K anymore. Um, if anything, people are screaming for 30, 35 K. Right. Um, mm. So, you know, we can kind of pump the brakes a little bit on that and talk, uh, you know, where, where maybe some of the, the struggle will be as we, as we move into fall, which I think everybody's waiting for, but then can also certainly talk about like, Hey, what's hot, uh, 
you know, where, yeah. where to kind of stay away from all that fun stuff. But yeah, man, I'm, I'm good. I, you know, picked up a, uh, as far as NFTs, picked up another doodle yesterday yeah. and then I, I'm trying to get you in. So we'll see if we can, uh, we can split one here. You're you're deep in the doodle game now, and I, I definitely want to, uh, you know, leave this context out there too. Like Mike was definitely, I would say, like a big uh, proponent of like, I guess, traditional crypto and things like this. Like NFTs and DeFi really weren't on your radar essentially. And then when you do get into, you know, an NFT, for example, you go deep. And this guy is fully in the NFT space now. He is telling me all about like the different rarity traits he's looking at for doodles and stuff like that. So what initially like triggered your interest in NFTs in that time? I know, again, you, uh, you know, adding a little bit of context, you mentioned that in our previous conversations that you kind of missed the wave on DeFi summer. Did that have any kind of like factor on you kind of getting into nft saying i'm not gonna miss this one well shit man i mean i've missed you know like at, at parada and us us personally even beforehand at ico alert like we we've been very fortunate to kind of hang around this industry for for four or five six years however long it's been and, and do well but the the amount of misses that i've had far outweigh the amount of hits that i've had and it kind of goes to show you that like you know, whatever the next kind of big niche is in crypto or, you know, maybe you kind of, you know, you thought Doodles was going to be big or you thought some token was going to be big and you didn't press the buy button. Like, that's okay, right? You, you don't need to FOMO in. There's so many different opportunities. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, basically all the way to like the very top of DeFi summer thought DeFi was a scam. Like that was, I was sticking to that. Didn't think it'd get any traction with the industry. Didn't think it'd get any traction with you know, the broader financial market. And of course that wasn't true. And then uh, NFTs got going and, you know, largely kind of felt like I was too late again, a bit, a bit of bias from that DeFi summer, right? Didn't want to necessarily kind of buy the top on NFTs and didn't spend the time looking into how that market works, how that, you know, those communities are, are kind of shaped. And, you know, you showed me on, on BAYC when you could pick one up at three ETH and, nine ETH and 12 ETH. And, you know, we went all the way to, to 160 ETH floor. So, you know, as far as like major niches go, I've missed, missed pretty much every single one since 2020. I mean, even, even March, 2020, I sold, you know, pretty much all my Bitcoin down at the 5k level. Right. So, mm. and here we are, right. So all you got to do is survive. All you got to do is be able to kind of, uh, to, to, to hang out for that next shot, which is, you know, to me, looking at doodles and and certainly looking at like NFTs as a whole, um, I guess is a, is a good place to start there, right? Like NFTs, I think, do a very good job of uh, forming a, a network, forming a community. I think at the base layer, that's uh, in a lot of ways what, what crypto has done. You see this with other financial products too, like we were talking about with GiftEd yesterday. Um, but Tesla is a great example, right? The hardcore Tesla people, yeah, they own a Tesla, they drive the Tesla, but they they see Tesla as much more than a car. They see Tesla as the future. They see Tesla as an operating system. They see Tesla as like a part of their identity. And NFTs are very, very good at doing that. And I think that's part of the reason that profile pictures have taken off as much as they have. Um, you can look at like the Bitcoin community, the ETH community, right? There's always your quote unquote maximalists who, you know, really kind of self-identify as crypto people right um and and i think nfts combine that with really interesting supply and demand structures uh where 
you know, you don't have hundreds of millions or billions of tokens that are that are out there in, you know, be it in like the actual float, the actual tokens that are available on the market or that are that are kind of uh, slowly being emitted through some sort of inflation process. So my point is, when when somebody looks at, you know, Board Ape Yacht Club and says, okay, you know, there are 100 of these for sale. And I feel like the market's ticking up now. Um, they got this big game coming out, right? It, it's it's a lot easier, I think, to look at that and say, hey, I can see the floor increasing from 85 to 105 with only 25 more sales or 40 more sales, right? All, all to basically say the supply and demand mechanics are that much more reflexive than just Bitcoin or other tokens, where when the thing starts to move up, and if it continues to move up and finds a trend, it will kind of like reflexively continue to do so, right? It's almost this self-fulfilling prophecy. And, uh, you know, you did get that a bit with with DeFi, um, but all the inflation, the emission around the DeFi tokens really kind of eventually killed it. And, you know, these these PFP projects, it's not like you're getting 100 new every week, right? Like there are only 10,000, there are only 5,000, only 1,000, whatever it is. So I think that's... Um, you know that, and, and and really their ability to build community, especially in the the blue chips, right, where people self-identify with them or, um, you know, use them as their profile picture everywhere. There's a lot of power in that, and I think we're going to continue to see that power, especially as ETH continues to find strength here. One thing you mentioned there is the fact that NFTs are kind of like this this extra leverage on top of whatever's going on, right? If things are going super well, then they're really going well in like the, the risky assets. But you see the opposite of that now. And you see like a complete Darth in volume, right? Like there's no volume in NFTs when you look at the charts as compared right. to even the start of the year. What's going to bring us back to a point where, you know, we can start seeing some good volumes? Because again, we're in that state in 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 that industry that feels super risky that people are like ah, i want to see maybe eth go back to 2k 3k and then i'll maybe get right. back into nfts do you do you see it that way is that how like all of this kind of works in your opinion yeah and i think you're exactly right i mean i think largely what you're pointing to is what i would call a wealth effect in crypto um one of the things i've i've been been saying and kind of touting for the last few months even down at these levels is is that this wealth effect has remained super strong. And what that is, is basically like, if you look at your hardcore Bitcoiners who were able to, to purchase early, right? Anywhere from 2011 to 2016, or even in 2020, right? When we saw it drop, you know, down into 4K, 5K. Um, if, if you, you know, load the boat at 5K, even here at 20K, you're still up 4X on your money. So what that does is it creates this wealth effect that, the, the crypto world and the crypto economy does a really good job of, of containing and not necessarily um, pushing it out, right? So maybe not your Bitcoin maxis, but a lot of people who, who would be up 4X or, you know, if it's, if it's, it's 60K per Bitcoin, obviously a lot higher, um, they will take a portion of that Bitcoin and maybe sell it and gamble on NFTs, right? So, you, you, you know, the more profit you have available there typically will uh, – kind of extrapolate itself over to other more bleeding edge areas of the market, like DeFi, like NFTs, where, um, you know, maybe somebody takes a chance on this brand new board, board, a club thing, or this brand new doodle thing. And next thing you know, 
they get a 10, 20, 50, 100x on this, and that wealth effect continues to grow exponentially, right? Because maybe they, they buy a board ape for one ETH and they sell it for 100 ETH and they take uh, 50 ETH and convert it back to Bitcoin, right? So now they've been able to increase their Bitcoin, but they still have 50 ETH worth that they're going to take then and buy a doodle with and buy an MEYC with and buy a clone X and buy an Azuki, right? So that all, you know, that growth then trans generally translates into future volume, right? It's, it, it, it's largely like a casino in a lot of ways, right? Everybody's trying to, when the markets are hot, when profits are high, they're trying to take that and squeeze a little bit out typically in, in an area that, um, has been moving and has been hot like a DeFi or like an NFTs that like we've seen. So in order for, for, for NFTs to get back, you know, I think what we've seen over the last few months is a, uh, you know, kind of a movement from your more far out there, you know, flipper NFT projects that kind of launch and pump and dump towards your more blue chips, like your Yuga stuff, like your doodles, your clone X, a lot of these, right. Um, you know, it, it seems to me that the two main players at this point are Doodles and, and Yuga, right? Those with like a real ability to cross from one crypto cycle, one crypto market, you know, bear bull cycle to another bear bull cycle. Um, so I think at this point, without any sort of kind of further, you know, maybe if ETH runs to 3K over the next two weeks, right, then a lot of this, this profit's going to come back and Maybe you see some of that volume pick up, but if we continue to kind of slowly chop upwards or chop up and chop down and price hangs around 1500 or 2k, um, then I think really what it's going to take is kind of new excitement, right? Either in a new project that's doing something fundamentally different with NFTs, not just a new profile picture who's giving out swag, right? But, but something fundamentally and like mechanically different, um, at, at the tech level, at the smart contract level, at the you know, whatever, whatever kind of uh, level you want to, you, you want to look at with NFTs there. But um, I think, it, I think it would be that, or it would be these, these projects actually executing. Like I think other side, based on what we've seen in a lot of those tests has a really good uh, chance at taking at least a couple thousand folks in the Yuga community and putting them in a game and then reinforcing that economy, which we can, we can talk about a little bit about with, ApeCoin and with, you know, Coda weapons and skins and Ford Apes and MAYC and, and different land, right? Like you can, you can kind of see how they could create this like 8,000 or 10,000 or 5,000 person economy and just let it spin and let it roll. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, Doodles in, in the same way, right? They're kind of taking more, more of a mainstream approach and trying to take the Doodles brand and Doodles merch and some other, you know, yet undisclosed concepts that we should hear about by end of uh, Q3, beginning of Q4 here, and, uh, you know, appealing to your non-crypto natives. So I think if, if either one or both of those can execute, you'll, you'll yeah. start to see some of those profits come there. And then maybe people take those profits and, and, and pitch it out into to, to maybe more bleeding edge NFT projects. Okay. I, I do want to get into the specific projects, the doodles. I see that you got a, you're rocking that Moonbirds merch. I like it. The BAYC, all of that stuff. Cause I think you have some interesting takes and you outline your thesis for each project really well, which is something I've appreciated about how you analyze things, you know, going all the way back since we first started in 2016. So I, I, I am going to head there though. I want to go back to when we first got into it to crypto, but my last question on this kind of like micro environment that we're in, what does, feds 
you know, height rakes or I'm sorry, uh, you know, the hiking rates for, yeah, for us in DGen land, right? Like it, it feels like we're still not decoupled by any means to any of this traditional finance stuff, but what, like in a very, you know, short amount of time, tell us what those, uh, rate hikes mean for us. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's obviously there's a lot there. It's hard to kind of, um, give like an elevator pitch on it, but I think largely and broadly, um, with the new introduction of more institutional capital into the crypto space, right? Folks like Michael Saylor and your, your kind of corporate theme, folks like Paul Tudor Jones and your more like hedge fund types. All these people are still like very much actively looking at Bitcoin. They may have sold their positions, right? And some of them sold the top, the middle, whatever. But like these are not entrants kind of like your retail folks who bought Bitcoin at 65 and sold it at 30 and are going to kind of disappear for a few years, maybe never come back. These people all very much exist in the crypto space. I think the majority of them are still interested in it and see the potential in it as a technology and as a speculative instrument. Um, so when that's the case and when you have from like a dollar notional value standpoint, all of that firepower there, you ha- you, you, you kind of like awkwardly and unintentionally like are then forced to play their game a little bit and their game as it's been since 2008 and even beforehand has been fed related, right? Where the fed with these rate hikes or, uh, you know, more like dovish scenarios where they're cutting rates and printing money, they're controlling the spigot, right? So obviously we saw during 2020, uh, they were printing money like crazy. Where was that money going? It was going to speculative risk assets. Crypto Mm -hmm. as was the golden goat, of inflation hedges and speculative risk assets at the time. So it saw tons and tons of inflows, right? But the same, you know, same obviously uh, kind of negative flows on, on the way out. Um, so as the, as the Fed is kind of tightening rates here, it just makes it harder to get access to cash cheaply. Um, so you can think of them like not only just turning off that cash spigot, but also actively trying to pull cash out of the system or trying to convince people you know, to pull cash out of the system. And one of the ways that happens is people sell their quote unquote, like risk assets, equities, crypto, whatnot, into cash, and they pull cash out of the system. And this hopefully helps reduce inflation and all these different things. That's their goal. Um, You know, historically, when the Fed is raising rates because of inflation, the market in the short term gets crushed, as we've seen. But in the long term, it, it does tend to outperform. Um, so I think we're kind of like middle of the road there, maybe a little bit further where in the latest fed meeting, you know, they did raise rates by 75 basis points again, but their, their sentiment and their tone was one of, of basically saying if inflation ends up peaking and we don't get a 9% plus number on August 12th, when the latest CPI print comes out, they will feel more comfortable reducing the interest rate hike from say 75 basis points or 0.75% to 50 basis points and eventually maybe 25 basis points. And that that's even just that signaling from them to say like, mm-hmm. Hey, we think we're headed in the right direction. We think, uh, you know, the, the basically that like inflation is going to normalize. It's going to start to get to the targets we want. That's what has spurred this equity and this crypto rally. Cause everybody's front running and saying, okay, feds feeling a little, little more yeah. firm they're not freaking out um and, and and you know 
Maybe we get a 10% CPI print on the 12th and everything dumps back down to the bottom of the range again. Um, but that's at least kind of the hope of the market right now. Okay. We could definitely go down a further rabbit hole with trying to like, you know, talk about pricing and all these things as it's related to like stocks and, and what you just talked about, which was the, the interest rates falling or, or, you know, continuing to rise. So that may be for another discussion. I want to get in a little bit into your intro folks. We have Mike Finch, uh, here, uh, from Parada Capital. We go way back ICO alert days, uh, even before that, of course, uh, but most people don't know that these channel you are on right now, the actual chat, the physical network that we are sitting on here goes back all the way to those ICO alert days. So just give me a, a rundown maybe of your time in crypto quickly before you got to ICO alert. And then we can just like flow in to today, you know, and then we can start talking about those projects. But I think there's a really cool story in there, of course, having been yeah. intimately tied to it. Um, yeah, there's lots of rise. stories. There's lots of stories, right? Everything from like, you know, thinking I had any idea how to trade Bitcoin back in, uh, in, in like 2015, 2016 times to, you know, next step after that was um, kind of expanding my horizons past just Bitcoin and, and finding Ethereum shortly after the Dow hack happened for them. Um, so, you know, was kind of like fortunate enough to be ignorant enough to jump into ETH at that time, even though it was like, you know, the riskiest time to jump into ETH. Um, and, uh, you know, just really kept learning. This was like your 2015, 2016 timeframe. I'd heard about it originally from from uh, my younger brother, who was a, a co-founder at ICO Alert with us. Um, and and I, I think that's kind of really the key, right, is that you just kind of have to fall in love with crypto and its, its potential, and you have to really be interested in it in order to kind of continue to progress through these cycles. So, that's how I started, right? Like had a Coinbase account, um, had just left my job in craft beer and started, you know, quote unquote, day trading Bitcoin, which was basically like, hey, I think it's going to go up. So let me buy some. And oh, no, it's going down. Let me sell some. And this was sub a thousand like, levels break... too, right? This was like sub a thousand. For yeah. Bitcoin. Yeah, this was like um, definitely sub a thousand. I mean, there was a period there where it was, um, you know, a couple hundred bucks because I like – there's still a Reddit post out there of me yelling at Coinbase because I like bought this Bitcoin uh, and something happened and like it took them seven days for it to get to me even just on there. Like that just shows you how bad Coinbase was then versus it is now. They've come they've come a long way. Um, but yeah, I mean like the, the, the most fun memory from that time was um, I was actually on my honeymoon, right? So I got married without, without a steady job, um, was kind of day trading Bitcoin, learning how all this worked. And uh, managed to buy some like right before some huge pump. So I woke up and like, boom, made a couple thousand bucks. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. Like I can just do this for the rest of my life. Well, you know, I figured it out and then proceeded to kind of like lose it all over the next few months and found ETH and started getting in there. Um, you know, I really, uh, really, I guess kind of like the first career move before ICO alert was I was one of the community managers for a project called District Zero X which is an old school OG uh, ETH project who, um, you know, they, they still exist. I'm not sure what, what he's got going on these days, but they, um, you know, really, really great guys there helped him with their, their ICO at the time and eventually joined um, my younger brother to start ICO alert, which uh, you know, a lot of wild stories at, at the beginning there. 
um, and, and through that whole process, but was, was basically for those who don't, uh, go ahead. No, no, no. So basically, and I hope there's not, not much lag coming through. So two things. One, I had no idea about this community manager role where you're just like managing the telegram or the slack or whatever the heck was going on at the time. I had no idea. And then two, let people know what the ICO was and if there's any at all possible kind of connections mm. to maybe DeFi or, or maybe NFTs even. Yeah, man, pretty pretty much. I don't remember how I, I heard about District Zero X. I think it was probably on Reddit or something like that. You know, it was a Slack mod, um, all that all that fun stuff. And, uh, you know, just kind of like was, you know, I thought District Zero X was going to do well. So we had our own our own roles there. It was me and, and, and two other folks on the community management team and, uh, you know, helped them kind of walk through their, their ICO. And, you know, you're basically like a, somebody who would put out fires, you know, community manager roles are still great ways to, to get into the space if you can find one. Um, mm -hmm. But that's really what you would do is like someone would have some issue, you would, you know, kind of uh, pass it up the, you know, pass it up the pipeline or whatnot, and, uh, and kind of handle things that way. So it was, it's, it's very, um, it's, it's very tedious and monotonous. It's not like a, a very like glorified role, but um, super important and a great way to kind of meet key people in the space and, and learn a lot. So was, was doing that grinding in the trenches of sorts. And then, yeah, ICOs, you know, we're, we're a very interesting fundraising model for um, primarily Ethereum based projects to start. So you could come out, you know, with a concept for a business or an application or something like that in the, in the crypto space, primarily on ETH and look to raise uh, money through what was called an initial coin offering, right? So you would basically raise money uh, with the promise of delivering people uh, a token that was unique to your project. Um, started out, you know, as, as things do in crypto, like very pure, very, uh, you know, unbastardized, if that's a word. And of course, like anything else with DeFi or NFTs, um, slowly kind of devolved into like, this speculative casino where the roadmaps went from, you know, 80, 80 steps towards glory to, you know, there's a new website coming. So then the token would pump and, and, and it just kind of became this big, like pump and dump scheme surrounded by a lot of bad actors in the space. Um, you know, you, you were there, we were, we were, you know, really strict on how we handled any of our research or, or listings or anything like that. And, uh, you know, I think, um, I think, you know, looking back, that was good. And you, you'll, you'll see some of that now with NFTs, right? Like the, the profile pictures, you know, they come out and they get some hype on Twitter and it's pre-reveal and you get a ton of volume. Um, people, people kind of playing the lotto there, trying to get an ultra rare on some new profile picture, hoping it's the next doodle or BAYC or whatnot. Um, and, uh, and, and then it eventually ends at zero, right? ICOs, mm -hmm. most of them happen that way as well. Guys, again, I'm sitting with Mike Finch from Parada Capital. Let's tie in ICO Alert. Uh, and maybe before we kind of like move on from that, favorite story from ICO Alert. Because it was a crazy time. It was a it was nuts. I remember us getting sent ETH for like, we, we didn't even know who it was. Like all these kind of crazy shit. But anyways, yeah. who? what was your favorite kind of story from that time, that chapter in 2017? Definitely the... Uh... What was the one? It started with an S. Stratus. Substratum. Substratum. Yes. So believe it or not, back in the day, Substratum was like 
Uh, it was like the ICP, the Internet Computer Protocol uh, project at the time, where it was like, we're going to reinvent the Internet, and you can run a node for the new Internet. And uh, at the height of the boom, I guess, in maybe it was in January 18 or fall 2017, we were literally sitting in the office watching, like, some C-SPAN hearing about uh, Internet privacy regulations trying to understand how substratum token price was going to be affected and it it wasn't it wasn't the absolute top of the market so i think we got in on the ico of substratum at like yeah at, at like a penny or three pennies or something like that and it was up 10x and the, the price was at 30 some cents um and we watched that and we're like yeah no, nothing really here you know, uh, kind of works with crypto. So I'm just going to sell, you know, I ended up selling the, the thing at 30 some cents, took the 10 X. It was a nice hit. Well, like three weeks later, it was at $3. Uh, and that was just pure pain because it looked like, Oh my God, the price is up so high. These guys must be doing so well. Uh, only to what, like a year later have been taking their, uh, their Dow treasury and, shorting ETH at like $80 with it only to get liquidated and, and to go out of business. So, you know, lots of metaphors to, to, to various projects that were hot in 2020 or 2021 and now basically don't exist. Um, but, but it's a good, it's a good lesson on perspective and sentiment and how kind of like blown out and, and frothy you can get in the high times in the same way you can get you know, blown out and scared and fearful in, in the bad times. So you can kind of maintain that, that balance a little bit better next time. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, sell substratum at three bucks or not sell it at 30 cents, right? Whatever the, whatever the case may be, you'll, you'll obviously be better off. That was a good one. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking over to my left here as I scroll coin gecko, uh, substratum is the 29 2942 <laughs> project on or second project on CoinGecko down 24% today it is oh. currently sitting at 6 tenths of a penny no no even less than that i can it doesn't even go any lower the chart doesn't go any lower i have no idea what happened to substratum but uh you mentioned something earlier in the episode as well talking about how this bear market feels a little bit less severe than you know 2018 through 2020 why i think as you go through this more and more um if you're doing it right you should be able to pick up on what you've done well what you what you haven't done well um you know i think for a lot of people when bitcoin touched 18 19k that was a spot where maybe they would want to buy but they didn't have cash available maybe they already bought at 30 or 25 or 20 right so um you know, cash on hand is, is something that I always preach. I, I preached it from probably like 35K to 65K all the way up. Um, and, you know, the lesson basically goes that like you always want to have some cash on hand for that chaos in the same way that you, you know, with your, with your favorite bags, want to have some of those bags in case of good chaos, right? In case Matic partners with a Disney and actually does something with it. Or in case, you know, BAYC is the, is the next big thing and a bunch of celebrities are going to, are, are going to want it and actually use it as their, their profile pictures. Right. So, um, it's just a, 
it's it's a lesson on extremes. It's a it's a lesson on like um, you know making sure that you're adequately adequately prepared for each scenario. So having you know, I I started in crypto in a bear market. Fortunately, um, I didn't know that there were market cycles at the time. I didn't know there was a you know bear bull. I was just learning. Right, started in a bear, kind of caught the caught the first run up. Saw that first run down. Uh, caught this run up. You know, saw this this run down. So basically, been through it twice now. Um, so you know, it's some of that survivorship bias, like I was saying, where I think those who have been through this and maybe have learned it are now positioning themselves a little bit better are saying, Hey, this can't be the bottom because I'm not in a ton of pain yet. Right. I'm not selling fucking shoes and shirts online just to pay my rent. Right. Or, or whatever it, it, it may be there. So um, I think that's what, what happens. And if you, you know, if you look at podcasts with any of the the big name OGs, like, like CMS or your, you know, a lot of your Bitcoin maxis, any of these guys, like, Kobe's a good one, right? They always preach just survive, right? So um, a lot of people didn't. A lot of people got wiped out with money in Anchor or money in Celsius. And, you know, all of that is not totally their fault. Um, but, you know, if you if you can survive and you can hang on, you can live another day to, to kind of swing for the fences there. And typically, if you're spending the time in the market, if you're learning, you know, actually like what the tech does and why it's important so that you can use that as a filter for the bullshit like substratum and internet computer protocol. And, you know, a lot of these that kind of come out with, with kitschy marketing or, or interesting, you know, fake narratives, it's, it, it, it ends up being a lot easier to kind of see the patterns over time emerge and understand, you know, Hey, this is something that could be real. I see a lot of people piling into this versus this is just something who, you know, some group raised a ton of money, but, all the VCs are going to just basically instantly dump it and it doesn't have a, a real chance to, to kind of do anything. So I, I think that's what's going on. Yeah. You mentioned the three AC and the Celsius lending scenarios. And I think there might be like some tie in to the situation that happened in March, I believe 2019. I know they're not the exact same scenario, but you talk about surviving, right? Like that black Thursday event was not only personally for you, like really a scenario where like, holy shit, you know, I could potentially get wiped out or what, what have you. But like, that was a scenario that was a little micro event that really sent us, you know, going, you know, plummeting downwards, which was a lot like the Celsius and, and three uh, AC situation. So can you tell me a little bit about that micro event? Cause I think it's important on the timeline uh, and you have experience with it. Like what happened that day and how does it relate to, maybe like the three AC and the Celsius mm -hmm. shit we're dealing with now. Yeah, it's very similar, right? Like it, it's, it was a giant capitulation event. Um, that, that week of March 9th, um, kind of culminating on the, is it the, I think it was that Thursday, Black Thursday, this was 2020, you know, with the big COVID crash. Um, that, that Thursday, as people called it Black Thursday, we basically went 45% down in a single day. Um, 50% down even. Uh, and it was, it was something that didn't have like hints from the fed that they were going to tighten rates. It, you know, the, the hints that were had were like strange Twitter videos of China sealing apartment doors that just, you know, no one had ever, especially in the West had ever kind of really thought was possible or really understood what it meant. So I think it was a bit more difficult than 
to kind of fully understand what the fallout could be, you know, from a modern day pandemic. So unlike today where the fear is very much like a recession, um, you know, uh, people are going to lose their jobs, right? Uh, risk assets are just going to get blown out of the water for the next three years. Like, how am I ever going to make money on this again? I'm already down so much. That that fear is is warranted and is real. And we've seen that over the last few months, but it, it wasn't the same fear as there's a virus out here killing people and we don't know how it's going to spread. Um, mm. So, you know, for me that, that week, of course, because this is always how it goes. If you ever see me on Twitter and I'm posting like a beach picture, like fucking sell it all. <laughs> because as soon as I go on vacation is when the market rips down or rips up. And either way, I'm not positioned, but like Mike somewhere, not at home or in the office, like, you know, bet, bet volatility, go long vol, hundred um, percent. So we were in New Orleans and, uh, you know, uh, the lady, lady was pregnant at the time and we were, we were running around the town having a, a great time, uh, you know, that, that week of March 9th, right? So like the COVID fears were there. I think a lot of people were, were kind of like just beginning to have that fear. Um, so each day kind of steadily increased the stress and the anxiety. Um, I think we, we, yeah, we dumped from, let's see, the week before or the two weeks before we had dumped from like 10K down to 8K and everyone was like, okay, you know, we should hold here. And then that week of March 9th, we started, we started dumping further. So Monday was kind of like, oh, maybe I'll buy a little bit here. Like, let's see how the market shakes out. And Tuesday was like, oh my God, you know, uh, you know, the, the White House is getting ready for a, a speech kind of thing. Uh, Thursday, we had the big crash and by Friday they were they, you know, as we were coming home, they were shutting down the schools. So, uh, it got really bad, really quick. Um, even quicker than this time, you know, it was really a period of like five or six days versus two or three weeks. And mm-hmm. that doesn't sound like that much of a difference. Uh, you know, just kind of looking at it that way. But when you see, you know, a majority of your net worth half over a period of two, three days, you, as I did, you know, have to kind of make the tough decision to say like, Hey, do I want to continue to survive in this market and live another day and dump a bunch of Bitcoin here at 5K in case it does go to 1K or 2K, um, you know, versus having to go out and get a real job, right? Um, mm. those, were, those were the decisions I had to weigh. Dumped a ton of Bitcoin at 5K in order to kind of like rebalance the books. Obviously, then we saw it rip up, but, you know, was able to, was able to keep swinging and hit on other things that year and in, in, in 2021 and it, uh, it, and it all kind of worked out, but yeah, it was a, it was a crazy time for sure. Yeah. So you mentioned maybe this time being a little bit more broadcasted, right? Like the three AC stuff, the Celsius stuff, BlockFi. I, I wouldn't say they were completely broadcasted, but you had some inklings. It wasn't like this global macro craziness that you saw with, uh, with the coronavirus. Uh, it's crazy to, I, I haven't said the word coronavirus, I feel like, in right. six months. It feels great. But uh, So are we out of the weeds with the Celsius 3AC stuff as, as it's related to kind of affecting the market uh, as a whole? It seems to be. You know, basically those groups are going through bankruptcy proceedings. Um, these are things that, that take years. Um, assets are going to be frozen, unfortunately, right? Those are both the folks that deposit them into, into Celsius, um, or, or those, you know, big time, big money investors who gave three hours capital money. Um, those, those assets are not going to move for a long, long time. 
Um, I think, you know, the next FUD that we're going to see is, you know, assuming we get out of, uh, you know, the, the, the CPI print here in a couple weeks, um, assuming things settle, maybe we continue up closer to 30K on Bitcoin and, and uh, 2K, 2,500 on ETH. Um, the next FUD is going to be the Mt. Gox Bitcoin. Um, Mt. Gox was an exchange that got hacked back in 2013, I believe it was, 2012, and basically sent Bitcoin from something like 1200 bucks to 80 bucks. And most people at the time uh, thought that that was pretty much it. Mt. Gox was, mm-hmm. you know, largely the only exchange. I think Coinbase got started in 2014. So Mt. Gox was the place to play, right? Um, everybody lost their Bitcoin there. Tons and tons of Bitcoin. I want to say it's like hundreds of hundreds of thousands of Bitcoin that are now finally getting sent back to folks. I don't have all the details on it. Um, mm-hmm. Exactly kind of like what portion are they going to get 30 cents on the dollar, 90 cents on the dollar, right? But that's that seems to kind of be um, the next FUD, meaning that I think largely from a from a press and narrative and kind of sentiment standpoint, the, the contagion news of sorts has has largely filtered itself out. Um, people got, people got blasted all the way from your folks who had just heard about Celsius and put in, you know, 10,000 hard earned dollars or a thousand hard earned dollars only to just basically have it disappear, um, all the way to like your largest trading desk, uh, in the space Genesis who lost Mm -hmm. billions of dollars to three arrows capital, um, understanding that three arrows capital was largely tied into both Celsius and, uh, Luna and UST. So, you know, it's, uh, it's been, a, it's been a crazy time, but I think from a contagion standpoint, we, we have survived the summer largely. Um, from that standpoint, I think it would be a surprise to most if all of a sudden it came out that like, there's, you know, Doquan has 50,000 Bitcoin that he's dumping on the market all of a sudden, right? Yeah. Like it, it, it would be, it would be unprecedented in that, in that sense. What are the features that need to be present for somebody like Genesis? This is an absolutely fucking crazy story. If you don't know this situation, you like what tell me what are the features that allows somebody like Genesis Capital to lend that amount of money to anyone? I don't care if they're Jesus Christ, three hundred million dollars or some whatever they lent to three AC mm. with no collateral whatsoever. Like, was that just like complete absolute ge- degeneracy, basically? It's hard to say. Um, historically, Genesis is one of the best actors in the borrow and lending space. Um, they're owned by Digital Currency Group, which is owned by Barry Silbert, right? A, a pretty prominent figure on on Twitter. Um, you know, these these are like the Bank of America type companies in in the crypto space. I mean, these are major players who have been there for a long time, who are absolutely printing money through or at least were through GBTC and ETH and all these other structured products. Um, you know, historically their uh, sales pitch has been that they run a, like a net neutral book or a Delta neutral book, which means they never have exposure to the market directionally, be it up or down. Right. So if they lend a bunch of Bitcoin to somebody and Bitcoin rips by 50%, it doesn't affect their book and vice versa, right? They lend a bunch of Bitcoin to somebody, Bitcoin dumps, doesn't affect affect their book. Now, folks like this with very, you know, high tech, responsible 
risk algorithms and risk metrics get blasted in the same way that banks do in 2008, right? Which, which is kind of the famous quote of like, it's not what you know, or it's not what you don't know that gets you in trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't it that ruins mm -hmm. you, right? And everybody thought that 3AC was like the top of the top when it came to hedge funds. I mean, they were the best of the best up there with Polychain. And I mean, even probably more respected than Multicoin, um, but one of the best, right? Like Suzu was on everything. His podcasts were print and views. You know, you didn't hear as much from Kyle, but you knew he was like very well respected. These guys were hardcore believers. They shield people on the super cycle, effectively, you know, this concept that crypto was not going to have some massive dump that we just saw it have, uh, and that maybe it would go to 40 or 30K, but it would rebound quickly, right? Just like mm -hmm. we saw in, in May of 2021. So that's how these folks get burned. Um, you know, Genesis has has a lot of money, and I and, and maybe the, you know, so what I've heard is they, they lent something like $2.3 billion to three hours capital. Um, and they had collateral in the neighborhood of about 50% of that. Right now that probably sits right at the top of the range from risk for them as to, as to what they want to see. Right. <laughs> um, in their mind, they're, like I said, they're lending to like a bank of America. They're lending to somebody who in, in no world would these guys be running this like funky Ponzi scheme, right? This funky, like Bernie Madoff style, hedge fund. Um, maybe they got a little greedy. You could certainly argue that in hindsight, right? Especially with some of the rumors around kind of what they were doing with, with GBTC as collateral. You know, Three Arrows Capital was basically buying Bitcoin, sending it to DCG, the parent company of Genesis, in order to convert it into the GBTC share, which at the time was sitting at a premium based on the mechanics of how that GBTC worked. So they could buy Bitcoin at 50K and give it to uh, the, the GBTC structured product, and now it would be worth 40% more, right? Now it yeah. would be worth 70K. They got in trouble when, you know, Genesis got in trouble, as the rumor kind of goes, if they then allowed three arrows capital to use that now newly printed premium of GBTC as collateral to borrow more, right? So then when the premium went from 40% layering. the layering, exactly. The layering of leverage is, is, is where you get in trouble uh, for a three years capital. So when that GBTC premium started to come off and started to come off swiftly and then eventually went negative, mm -hmm. you now run into a scenario with three euros capital where the collateral that you put up with GBTC is down so tremendously that these folks are going to be asking for a margin call. They're going to be asking for their money back, or maybe they, you know, who knows, maybe they structured something out so that three arrows could kind of continue all the while three arrows probably is messing with Celsius. They got some money in, in, in anchor and with UST gotcha. and eventually the, the wheels came off and everything kind of grinded to a halt and, anybody and everybody in the borrowing and lending space who was a big player was, you know, either slightly affected or in the case of Genesis, majorly affected. And, and the mm -hmm. final point I'll give you on that is that um, from, from Genesis, they basically said that they lost 
so much money on the three arrows capital situation that it negated all revenue that the company has ever made, that Genesis has ever made. So they basically took, they took the loss from the mm-hmm. Genesis entity and, you know, allowed it to be shouldered by the DCG entity so that Genesis wouldn't effectively go out of business on, on the books. So, gotcha. yeah. Okay. Well, listen, I want to stop us there. We could definitely like delve into that whole conversation and continue down that road. And I think it's important that we do at least touch these topics. You know, this is the Nifty Q show. We're covering mostly NFTs, but this stuff all is kind of in- incorporated into each other at this point. So if you're there yeah. and you're kind of sitting there and you're wondering like, why is, why do I need to listen to this? It's like, cause all of this is interconnected. So please take some time, listen to the words that, that Mike was talking about. If you also have any questions, please drop them in the comments. If you're listening on audio afterwards, I appreciate you very much. Uh, we are on Spotify, Apple podcast, all that noise as well. So definitely drop those questions if you're in the live chat, but let's get into the juicy stuff, Mikey. You are an NFT degen now, just like the rest of us. You've got a lot of projects that you're interested in, primarily doodles. Uh, Parada Capital has taken some investments, uh, early stage investments in the likes of Flow and a couple other uh, pieces there that are, you know, heavy hitters in the NFT space. So tell me what your involvement is, you know, with Parada maybe, wherever you want to take it. You tell me where you want to go as far as it's related to NFTs and we can talk. Yeah, totally. Um, You know, so Parada is a is a self-funded hedge fund that myself and uh, a partner of mine run. Um, we basically run two, two buckets of capital. One that is your kind of more liquid trading uh, bucket. You know, if we think, if we think Matic is going to go up, then maybe we'll buy it. If we think it's going to go up, then maybe we'll short it. Um, maybe we think Matic's going to go up and Bitcoin's going to go down. So we'll short Bitcoin and long Matic and kind of run like a, a spread trade there. Um, we'll collect yield in, in, in places. Um, you know, we're doing all sorts of different things on the liquid trading side, a good bit of which is NFT type trading now. So, <clears throat> excuse me, if you if you kind of look at um, and, and I, I'm still really learning how the NFT market really works. Right. Like, I think I, I have a good idea of the mechanics. Right. But it's a it's a market that I think is largely determined on flows, flows of of dollars, flows of ETH into and out of projects. Um, you can get run over very quickly because of how reflexive um, and and how illiquid NFTs are. So it's very very difficult to trade, uh, but the reward is obviously much much higher, right? If you if you can if you pick up a board a peer at eighty five and the the floor or eighty six wherever it sits and the floor is able to hold and you're able to time that with the launch of the other side game and now we got the floor at one twenty, all the while ETH runs from 1500 to 2500 bucks you have a kill like absolutely killer trade there um because you're not only are you you know 50 percent up or whatever or 25 percent up on the nft trade but then you're you know 80 percent up on the underlying eth value as well so nfts as i see them uh very like uniquely work as a, a leveraged eth trade one example I'll give you is uh, on the first dump down, whenever Anchor blew up before we knew of any of this contagion, uh, ETH was like 1800 to 2K. That was the first like really capitulatory event for NFTs. Um, so at the time, you know, looked like a great buy, buy some ETH there and flip it into 
an NFT, in this case, an ultra rare, the ice cream on my, my Twitter profile pick, um, you know, you're basically buying ETH at a discount and you're buying the NFT OTC or, you know, via an OpenSea or whatever at a discount as well, right? Obviously, the market continued to dump, uh, but it ended up working out because the, the um, NFT value has, has largely held at, at or around uh, the, the price that I paid for it there. So I like to, personally, I like to look for your more ultra rare or like, you know, top tier rares uh, when you can take cash, buy ETH, buy cheap ETH with it, and then also get that NFT like capitulation moment. As, as we saw at that time. You haven't really had as much of it. You got a little bit of it, um, you know, like on kind of the latest dip, but it's very, it's very quick. It's not over a multi-day mm-hmm. period. Um, so I like to do that in the same way when you look to sell them, right? Like if you can get a run, a double up on ETH here and a double up on uh, even like the floor price, right? So if you buy a doodle here for 10 and a half or 11 and floor runs to 22, all the while ETH runs to 3K, you know, it's a nice, it, it's a very, very nice trade because you're getting, a, you know, you're getting like a, a, an exponential growth factor there um, as, as far as your returns go. So, you know, um, that's that's what we try to do with Parada. We try to do that with like other, other personal funds as well. Um, and then uh, have been investing a bit too in like your NFT infrastructure plays. Um, so I see... I see like interesting things happening with the rental and kind of like borrow lending market with NFTs. You know, one of the, the tricky things with Bored Apes is that as that value has continued to go up in both ETH terms and dollar terms, uh, it gets harder and harder for people to buy the NFT. Even if even at today's value, right, a couple hundred thousand dollars, it's hard for somebody to kind of get in and get out of that. But if you can, say, borrow the ape, and get full exposure to the ape value in some way by borrowing it um, or get full exposure to like an airdrop that's coming and then return it and keep the airdrop um, there, you know, that's very beneficial, right? Cause it acts as almost like a, like a call option on, um, uh, on, on the, the, the product. You don't have to put up the full 85 ETH, you know, maybe it costs five ETH to borrow it. Right. But mm-hmm. then you get the you get like an MAYC airdrop and it's instantly 15 ETH. You've now made 10 ETH. Right. So this kind of financialization of NFTs that then allows more of your more like traditional trader, investor, speculator types to come into the market, which is then going to boost volumes, which is going to pay NFT projects more allowing them to kind of build further and do more things, right? It, it just becomes this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy um, all the while the, the supply mechanics largely stay the same, right? Those really reflexive things um, that NFTs have, even versus tokens or, or, or Bitcoin or anything else, um, I, think, I, I think is really powerful. So that's why we've, why we've, we've hung around in, in NFTs and see a bright future, especially for the, for the blue chips um, like your doodles, like your, your Yuga assets. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about those blue chips cause there's multiple different projects you guys have at least look into when you're looking into projects and you mentioned rarity, what do you, what are you looking at? Like actual rarity when it comes to like the, the traits, are you looking at, Oh, this looks, 
you know, aesthetically rare, maybe. I don't, I don't know how you look at these NFTs when you're looking to buy a doodles or, or what have you. Uh, what do you kind of look for when, when you're, I guess, looking within those projects? And then what are those projects that interest you right now? Yeah, I, I think, you know, in going through it over the last, I don't know how long it's been since uh, we, since I jumped into NFTs, but like the, the best way to start in any new niche, be it DeFi or NFTs or anything else, I think is to, to try to understand what it is that gets people excited. What do, what do others care about, right? Like I might see an NFT project and I'm like, this art is super cool. I really like this and I might buy some, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean it's a good investment or a good trade just because I like it, right? It becomes a good trade when it's something that's universally liked, right? When it's, when it's something that uh, appeals to the broader crypto space, not just me. Um, you know, more kind of broadly, definitely look at actual rarities based on traits. That seems to be something that, that resonates with people. Um, I think what we've seen over the last couple months as prices have just gone down and down and down, um, you know, like ETH value, right, is that a lot of your mid-tier rarities end up moving closer to floor versus like ultra rare uh, prices. Um, and I think that's because when you look at your like mid-tier rarities, and again, like you can look up these rarities on Rarity Sniper, Rarity Tools. If you just type in like NFT rarities, there's a ton of different sites that are that are tracking this and updating rarities, uh, you know, as as projects are revealed and whatnot. So um, there, there, there are cool ways to kind of like filter by rarity and say, uh, oh, this is, you know, this like brand new project just revealed. Um, here's like, you know, a top 50 rarity out of a, out of a 10,000 piece collection that's selling for way less relative to the other 49 NFTs in that top 50. And if the project doesn't rug, it might end up being an interesting trade or an interesting buy. So I think rarities are important for that reason. And I think it's, like I said, it's one of those things that largely the NFT community has looked at and said, this matters. Right. Um, but again, the mid tiers, like, I think you got to be a little careful. There's, there's quite a bit more of them than there are the ultra rares. Um, and if you get in a scenario where you have to sell it for liquidity, that's where you get burned by uh, traders, you know, out there who are, are going to try to like catch a 10 or 15% capitulatory sell and then mm. sell it for, you know, maybe a little bit more plus that, that premium they were, they're, they're able to convert from the, 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 the yeah, dip they got. There's a couple of things I want to touch on here. Uh, one being Wagme United and LinkStyle, which are two projects that you invested in that didn't have the zeitgeist, right? Like definitely picked up interest. People were, you know, people that were interested in it were super fucking hyped, like us two being two of them. So that I want to touch on here in a second because it didn't have that, you know, pump essentially in, in, yeah. in what you're talking about there. But I also do want to, before we get there, touch on this rarity piece because personally I sold an ape about a month ago, my like OG ape that I thought I was going to have forever, not necessarily a rare ape, you know, not necessarily like yep. the traits themselves aren't rare. It was the combination of those traits. So for example, like if I, if I go direct, it was the fact that it was all white plus the bubble gum, plus the ears that were also pink. So it was like aesthetically pleasing, but not yep. rare. And I, it, one thing I want to add to this conversation and get your thoughts on too is like how that cannot be botted. 
because that's a human subjective thing that, that you see that the bot can't see essentially like the computer can't see that aesthetic value, but yeah. I know I'm rambling. Let me know what you think no. about like, yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And that's, that's something that I've started doing with doodles. Actually, um, that buy that I had yesterday, I picked up the, uh, uh, doodle number two thirty one, right. Which is, uh, what I would call like as close as it gets to, a monochrome or a mono doodle, right? Where the color is all the same. Um, so doodle number 231, it's pretty much all yellow and then the hair is pink, right? So it's very different mm-hmm. than a lot of the other doodles who are working with three, four, five different colors. Um, and it, it ends up being, like you said, way more aesthetically pleasing. And I think for your projects where uh, they're newer and they're less proven, this will get you into a lot of trouble. Um, you know, Moonbirds has kind of gone through that with their latest uh, merch release. So they have a, a, a product characteristic called nesting, which is where if you basically like stake or lock up your Moonbird um, for a certain amount of time, after that, you know, 30, 60, 90 day period is, is released, you'll get some item. And the latest one, which took 60 days for, for somebody to reach, which is a lot of time, right? Um, especially in the crypto world. They gave like a fanny pack and some socks, you know, some merch that people were not happy with. And we saw some like really funny FUD hit the uh, the crypto Twitter timeline. And you saw Moonbirds go from like 29 all the way down to 19. I think it's bounced back up over 20 here. But that's a good example of your kind of short-term flippers who are really pissed. They thought the silver nest was going to be something big. You know, uh, maybe they thought it was going to go and break 30 there. It's a huge flop. They start fudding out the rest of the, the Moonbirds community and everybody starts dumping them. And a lot of these aesthetic birds move more closer to like your 19, 20, 21 ETH marks where they're only 5, 10, 15% above floor. And these people get burned because they bought them at like double floor price or 50% above floor price. And, but Moonbirds is newer, I right? See. They've only been around for three, four months. So there's a lot more question around like, hey, is this going to make it? What are these guys doing? But it seemed, you know, I picked up a, a Moonbird um, two days ago, uh, largely because towards the end of August, there's a there's a big proof event, right? Where you mm-hmm. think you might get some some kind of good news and some some hype and all these things and look to kind of try, try to trade it, it higher there. But I bought like the floor bird of all floor birds. It's got like zero trades. So uh, you, you know, you'll be able to move it quick versus like, buying something at 25% above floor and then being forced to try to sell it at 25% above floor. floor, Right. But again, this is, this is where you get in trouble with the aesthetics to your point with projects like BAYC, where pretty much everybody, especially those in the community, I mean, it's always going to have its haters. Right. But I would say largely the crypto community looks at a BAYC and I think eventually a doodles and says, Hey, this isn't going away. Right. Like this community is strong. This wealth effect has been created. These people aren't going to give up all of their apes, you know, in order just to kind of cash out for ETH. So the aesthetic becomes more uh, popular and more um, kind of like price demanding because it no longer becomes a question of will apes go up in, or, or survive or whatnot. I want to be a part of it. It goes mm-hmm. to I want to be a part of it. Which ape do I like the most or which ape? do I identify with the most or which one looks the most like me? So if you end up having an aesthetic, uh, you know, 
BAYC like you had, it becomes really powerful because so many other people look at that and they're like, oh man, that's an awesome one, right? It's unique for these aesthetic reasons, um, which is, you know, what I'm trying to do with, with some of the doodles. I like the mono doodles. I think, yeah. I think they'll appeal to a lot of people. Yeah, I pulled up 231 on the screen so people got a chance to look at that. But you keep mentioning doodles alongside Board Ape Yacht Club here. Why is doodles to you the the like either comparison level or at least come on the come up to being one of those like top top blue chips as opposed to I don't know, I throw out anything V friends or any of these like clone X's that are coming out. Yeah. Why why doodles being in that that comparison? I think um you know, alongside a lot of the kind of parallels that it has to, to board eight, things like celebrity buy-in, um, things like uh, crypto community buy-in, right? Like doodles in the same way as BAYC has kind of been through the ups and the downs, right? They've been around long enough where you can then look at, say, like the top 50 or top 100 rarity and get a price history to it. Whereas Moonbirds has only been around for three or four months. And during the, the dump we had in June, you could get a, a crazy high rarity for like 30 or 40 ETH, right? Which sounds like a lot, but if ETH's at 800 bucks, you know, you're grabbing that for 20, you know, 25K when mm. everybody else historically has paid 100K or 200K or 300K for these ultra rare. Well, Doodles has already gone through that process, right? It's already gone through a lot of the FUD. It's already gone through like a lot of this pricing history where it becomes a lot easier for folks in my opinion, to look at a doodles or look at a BAYC or look at an MAYC and say, we've based it like a, a, a 15 or a 16 or a 17 E floor on MAYC so many times that I'm going to buy here, right? Like mm -hmm. historically, this uh, same with BTC Basin at 20, right? Um, and I'm sure it will continue to test these, these low 20 numbers. But the more it does that, the more comfortable people get buying there. Uh, newer projects, it's, it, it's a bit harder. So I think time is very, very important in the NFT world. It shows you that like these guys can exist past just the initial or the second hype cycle. And you kind of have like the reveal hype uh, with with NFTs and then things dump and they kind of settle. And then you have like the, the roadmap hype and hey, these are the plans. Um, and then things kind of dump and, and settle a little bit. And then they, they actually have to go out and execute, right? And Yuga's obviously done that. Doodles has done that in a major way with all their new announcements. Uh, I mean, Pharrell, one of the largest uh, artists and producers in the world, is the chief brand officer for an NFT PFP project, right? It's mm -hmm. very like a great parallel to Jimmy Fallon talking with one of his guests about like which board apes they own. Or Madonna tweeting recently like, yeah. I wanted this ape and I didn't get it. And now I'm pissed. Like in what, like rewind two years ago or crypto kitties time, like what world are we living in? This is like, yeah, this is like the Bitcoin shill you got in 2014 that like big banks are going to be buying and customers. Like, what are you talking about, man? Like Madonna doesn't give a shit about board apes and here she is tweeting yeah. about it. Right. So, um, doodles is, yep. is not yet at the Yuga level. Um, Yuga has, has been able to create more of a wealth effect for their community. Um, their mint price was super low and the floor price now is super high. And that is incredibly powerful. You know, folks like you, you, you had two, two apes, you can sell one. And like I said, at the beginning of the show, kind of reinvest those, those profits elsewhere, right. Or take some out mm -hmm. to the bank that then 
is going to give you that much more foundation to not sell that the, the ape you have currently, right? Yeah. Which only further in, in, improves the, the supply and demand effects there. I, I love that. I love that. And I, there is a question to be asked of whether doodles, you know, in that run up, right. Can another project get to that level where I don't remember what doodles mint price was, but I'm assuming when you zoom out and you say maybe doodles gets to a hundred, it looks a little bit like the board eight price, right? Like that, it would look essentially like that. Can it get there? Um, there's a lot of different things that, you know, we could unpack there. We're coming up to the end of the episode. I do. Ah, man. Yeah. There's a lot of different pieces here. Let's touch on wag me and, and links because I think there is this idea that, you know, they can really have some really awesome beneficial aspects yeah. in IRL in like real life where you see the crossover effect where a lot of what's happening right now, it's either in, you know, the metaverse or it stays on discord. It, it never transitions other than like maybe one or two events per year to having any type of effect in the real world. Whereas Linkstow and, and Wagme have come out the gates and are like either planning on doing that relatively shortly with Linkstow. I don't know where they're at with buying the the, the club essentially. Right. And Wagme, who <coughs> I think has a great idea in buying that English football club and managing it and having some you know utility for holders. Is the plan there to like should should people that buy that NFT expect to never have the type of like twenty ETH run up? Like, is this, do the mechanics just not work for a project like that? Or we, I thought it would have been way more, uh, you know, of a slam dunk than it has been essentially. So tell me what your thoughts are with those two projects and why they haven't had like a one or two ETH or three ETH rip. Yeah, I you know I think those two doodles even and then some of your more like kind of like fine art nfts as i'd I'd call them the the newer ones all now are getting kind of grouped into this new basket of like nfts that are in communities that are executing on their goals in major ways right links dow is a golf focused nft and dow that is basically using funds that it has raised and, and will continue to hopefully grow through their their nft volume and project to buy a legit golf course somewhere in the us like probably on the east coast that's that's where all the founders are based and you know create this like web3 country club around a golf course that works for the community because community members naturally are uh golf fanatics and they like golf and you know you can kind of combine that with with crypto and the digital aspects and now you have this really cool kind of like self-fulfilling uh community that that creates all this this value um same with wagme in this case it's the it's the soccer team doodles is trying to do it by bridging the gap between like crypto natives and non-crypto natives they're trying to extend the doodles brand to uh you know your your nft folks who aren't necessarily crypto native but find the concept of nfts and the the freedom around like art or music or this kind of new way to to be creative and actually get paid for it. Um, and you, you, you know, you're also seeing some really cool things with uh, famous artists like uh, Tristan Eaton has his Gemma collection that's been out for a while. Um, uh, Michael Reeder is another one that I like, another artist I like who came out with Cyber Bandits. And all five of these, you know, even Doodles, right? Like you would think, okay, it's if, if it's the number two, number three NFT project now, like how is the floor still at 10? And I think 
all of this is largely just a function of the broader crypto market. And this kind of goes back to what we were talking about before and why I think as NFTs continue to stay an important piece of the crypto market that you have to be tuned in to the larger crypto market as a whole. Um, you know, if you mint wag, wag me for 0.38, right, when ETH is at 1600 and you're, you're uh, only messing with a couple hundred bucks or a couple thousand bucks here, and ETH goes back to 1200 or 1300 and wag me goes from 0.38 to 0.28, like you start to get in a scenario where you can no longer buy new NFTs, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and maybe you dump it for a loss and move on. Whereas... I don't think the strategy for most people in NFTs right now should be finding that quick flip because again, the broader market conditions just aren't there for a wag me to come out and go to one ETH and then go to two ETH, right? Like people just don't have the profits and don't have the funds right now to be trying to catch like wag me at three ETH and sell it for 30. Like the amount of people that have to come in and buy wag me all the way from a floor price of three ETH to 30 ETH is tremendous. They have to have a large amount of dispensable income to speculate with or join the join the community with, right? Whatever their goals may be. Um, and you're just not gonna get that. So with with all five of those projects, Doodles included, Cyber Bandits, Gemma, Wagme, LinksDAO, I look at this as almost kind of the way that you look at some popular ICOs coming out of the ICO wave. And saying, okay, yes, I can no longer, you know, uh, send some ETH to some random fucking ETH address and two weeks later turn it into 10x more ETH. But mm -hmm. I know that so-and-so ICO has a ton of money in the bank and they've already, they've already executed on all this and they have a very compelling roadmap. And while, you know, everybody right now is kind of licking their wounds and not necessarily caring too much about being at a country club in upstate New York or Florida or wherever the hell it is, because they can't even afford a plane ticket to get there in the first place. I'm still buying it here. Mm -hmm. And I might even buy more on the way down because I think over the next year or two or three years, they're going mm -hmm. to execute. And, you know, it, it becomes a different model than what you've seen with NFTs where all historically people have seen is like, you know, you, you mint, it goes up from the mint price. It settles for a little bit, but there's really no kind of like good chance to, to jump in. And then it pumps to the moon, right? Like that, yeah. that day is over. I, I think there's an argument to be made, even with Board Ape Yacht Club of like, what other utility can they drop at this point? Like they hit the mutants hard. They hit ApeCoin hard. They hit other deeds hard. Like what else comes out? And I'm going to look like an ass for having this like on the internet, but like it feels like <laughs> right at the bottom. It, yeah, yeah. It feels like they just dropped everything that is of, of worth value that's not going to potentially dilute the community in the future. You know, like that in the, in, in you know the crypto community and the NFT community. And I've seen this happen in the metaverse with projects like Crypto Voxels, where like we're we don't want that extra dilution of our product. You know what I mean? Like. Mm -hmm. I bought, I just bought you guys. You guys are going to add another 10,000, you know, supply piece here. Like, so I, I think it's, it's definitely an interesting route, uh, that board ape has to like add additional utility. But I agree with the overall sentiment that like that time of like flipping for nothing and on a roadmap 
looks a lot like the ICO phase, and we were definitely you know out of that time frame as well. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, I can I can give you my uh, my 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 bullish Yuga ecosystem pitch here. Oh shit! Dude, I, that's why we I can, had you on. Can, what the? F- we can finish the episode here. I mean, yeah, you, it's a it's a very good point, right? Like Yuga's not in a position where they can come out with like robot ape yacht club and and cat ape yacht club and just dilute it dilute everything to zero right like that's not that's not what their goals are nor is that a reasonable route to take however with the current setup between the kennel club mutant and then the you know the the ape you basically have like three levels of public tradable assets that act as kind of tickets into this new other side ecosystem right you you know Maybe those become characters in the game. Maybe you can use a board ape and and the dog. Who knows, right? But those interacting with codas and resources and land, all of which is powered by, say, an ape coin, could potentially, with enough buy-in from the current community and future community members, create this really awesome micro ecosystem where everybody is believe it or not, like continuously rewarded as they continue to play the game, right? This kind of like play to earn function that we heard so much about that now is all of a sudden disappeared um, and get rewarded as new entrants come in and play the game, right? So imagine you can travel to different land as your mutinate character and uh, pay the coda ape coin in order to mine uh, bubonium that then you can use to like, uh, you know, create some new weapon and sell that weapon back to, you know, some, some landowner who has a coda and wants to duel his coda with another coda and whoever wins gets more ape coin. Right. And you have these landowners who, you know, you have a rare resource here with an environment in the sediment tier that's super high, meaning that more and more people are going to come, going to want to come and pay you ape coin for you to use there. And again, this is all speculation. I have no idea yeah. if this is actually how it works, right? But this is just this is just like one way to kind of play out the ecosystem. More and more uh, Yuga holders come to this piece of land to mine bubonium, right? In order to then craft it and sell it. And eventually enough people do it. And then, you know, now there's a lot of these weapons out there. So the price kind of falls. But this, this landowner with this coda may be, you know, in order for the coda to mine, you need a coda pickaxe, right? Mm. Maybe they have like a, uh, a rugged pickaxe and there's some way to like turn that into a fully forged pickaxe, but then you need a new resource, right? And ApeCoin kind of ties all this together, right? In order to um, maybe get discounts at the shop, you have to stake ApeCoin, right? But when you stake ApeCoin, you also get a staking reward, right? Which kind of gives you more ApeCoin. And, you know, as long as it's not too inflationary, your, your budget of ape coin that you can then kind of spend on, on cheap resources or cheap objects or cheap artifacts continues to go up. And what you have is you have this like really unique, complex, almost like gameable ecosystem that evolves. And as, as Yuga points out, should be able to be crafted and created in a unique way by the community members. You, you have this ecosystem growing all in itself rewarding each other via you know inflation rewards or uh whatever the case may be 
and it becomes something that's really compelling to other people who want to have a good time in the space and they want to have they want to make money and and can do so kind of via this game so i know that was a little bit all over there but i think like looking back on it on on doodles you know who's trying to like who's, who's going to kind of try to like sell traits and merch it seems in order to reward holders and you got to try to reward you know their their holders by by having certain you know uh actions in, in the game like I, I think we're going to look back on this time and be like oh my god like i should have just I should have just picked up a, a doodle for 10 ETH or I should have just bought like an MAYC for, for 16 because the plans were there. It was just a matter of them kind of executing. Yeah, we're deep down the rabbit hole and we're sitting at about an hour and 20 minutes, which is definitely one of the longest podcasts I've had. We're planning on bringing back Mike every quarter, maybe even like every month. That would be awesome uh, just to get uh, these continuous updates, man. I like your take on the industry. One of the pieces you touched on briefly for like 0.5 seconds was that play to earn does not exist as it did maybe even four or five months ago. Uh, that seems to have been like, I, I think along with Axie Infinity, who is carrying that flag, and then they just like bit the dust. Like that term seems to have now taken on like some type of negative connotation. I'm interested to see like in this gaming mindset that you just mentioned, right? Like doodle. Oh, we could pick up a doodles for 10 ETH. Like that is still expensive for the majority of the world. You know, sure. like, how do you mesh these ecosystem plays that you're mentioning about growing, you know, even like a other side with trying to like bring in people just to play or, or just to like get in with $10. Like how do you, see that kind of playing out you know how does doodles you know reach mass market when the floor price is at 10 ETH? yeah I, that's the hardest question right and that's kind of the biggest uh question mark that people have when they really sit down and think about like okay how does other side go from five thousand or ten thousand or fifteen thousand like crypto natives playing the game to you know 25 50 100 200 millions of people playing this game and I think if we knew exactly how it was going to happen, then it would, you know, it would be kind of one of those things where uh, the price would reflect that. But because we we don't know exactly how they're going to pull it off, and because of you going to doodles, and I'm sure many other communities are kind of keeping their their plan for execution tight to the chest, it gives you like less certainty and more speculation, and that's just how the crypto market works in a lot of ways. Like you could even look at layer twos, right? These, these various bridges that are out there, be it on Ethereum or, 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 you know, bridges to other chains. And each one largely kind of has the same pitch and nobody really knows like, what is the, the biz dev team doing to, to execute? And every once in a while you get little hints as to, you know, like Matic has done a good job of this of saying like, we're in Disney's incubator and we're, you know, uh, creating this multi-hundred million dollar investment fund, right? You get these little hints as to like, hey, this is how they're going to be the main layer two on Ethereum, right? They're going to mm -hmm. go, you know, do this, do that, right? And um, it's like, it's hard for me to kind of sit here and exactly lay it out and yeah. versus like kind of just thinking about it from like a probability standpoint to say like, okay, Yuga has executed on everything up to this point. Literally the biggest complaints they get are like merch or like shipping times or things like this. Whereas other projects <laughs> are screwing up drops or like can't figure out the reveals or their discord communities are a mess, right? Like 
the probability there is obviously a lot lower that they kind of they kind of like pull off this this execution yeah. thing. I, I do see the irony, having been that user myself of complaining about some type of shipping times, but I do see the irony of that, right? About how all that wealth creation that they made, and yet these were still not happy. And that's that yeah. probably goes back to human nature and all these things. But uh, I do want to give a, a one quick last shout out to the chat that has been listening this entire time. Again, we're running up on an hour and a half, so I want to let you out of here, Mike. But Dead Polaroid is saying Avagachi is killing it. Y'all, y'all do know Avagachi, and he also said, or he or she also said lending which i think might be an answer to that question as well right like people somebody might want to get in for you know one ape coin they could rent out my ape or what at whatever to play the game yeah. for an hour or what that sounds really convoluted now that i say it out loud but it looks something like that with lending i could definitely see yeah. that being an answer but go ahead um yeah i mean like if you can borrow if you can borrow a cute little coda and a coda pickaxe and play the game for four hours and come out with more ape coin than, than what it costs to borrow. That's right. becomes pretty, uh, you know, pretty, pretty satisfying over time, especially if the game's actually fun. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very important piece there. Uh, we could get into a whole nother conversation on NFT games. Me and you both are gamers ourselves. And I think that that is a good discussion to have. Maybe the next time we have you on, uh, one last shout out here to the chat uh, and those of you that have been listening uh, at home uh, on audio or, or afterwards here on YouTube. So thank you guys so much for tuning in today. Orlando, mahalo, my brother, for, for coming by. Good to see you again. Mike, do you have any last uh, thoughts or anything we didn't touch? Also drop the links to where people can find you. Um, I would just say that you know, if you're, if you're still hanging around, you're still listening to content, you're doing what you're supposed to, right? You're surviving, just like we were saying. Um, I feel much better about the crypto markets now than I did one or two months ago. And things are, are really starting to, to kind of look up, right? Like it does, it does really feel like a uh, conceivable, we're all going to make it moment here as the market starts to settle and, and sentiment starts to improve and people start to kind of return to this, uh, this awesome world that we find ourselves in. But um, I'm always talking always talking crypto, always kind of, uh, you know, tweeting my, my thoughts out, whether they're sober or intoxicated on, on Twitter. Uh, you can follow me at, at that Finch guy. Um, that's, you know, pretty much where I exist on, uh, on all social medias as, as far as handles go. But, um, yeah, man, this was great. Looking forward to doing it again. Yeah. Mike Finch from Parada Capital and purveyor of fine liqueurs. Uh, of course that yes, he, yes, he, just, yes, yes. He, he has the drinks lined up. Uh, I will be talking to you soon, man, about maybe potentially getting another sip of that Don Julio. We'll, uh, we'll have a good time. No doubt. Thank you so much, guys. Appreciate it. This was the Nifty Q Show. We will be here next week, of course. We're here every week interviewing founders, leaders, and builders in the Web3 industry, NFT space as well. So this was Mike Finch. Mike, you're the man. I'll see you next time. Peace.